0: It's convicting and it's wonderful. So I hope we can enjoy the word today together. There's a story, supposedly a true story, when Billy Graham was very early in his ministry. He went to a, a little church out in the country, a small town, and and uh, it was a little Baptist church to preach. And uh, while he's going through town, he met a little boy and, and asked the boy, "Where's the post office? I got to mail a letter." And the little boy said, "Well, the post office go down here, turn left, blah blah, and and so forth." Then Billy Graham turned to him and said, I'm going to be, uh, if you want to, I'm going to be preaching tomorrow at the uh, First Baptist Church here in town. You, you can come and I'll tell you how to get to heaven. And the little boy said, I'm not going to come because if you don't even know how to get to the post office. <laughs> yeah. Kind of a humorous story, of course, and I guess a true story. But uh, at the same time, uh, the only road map that many people will see uh, for going towards heaven will be you and I. Now, we know faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But most people won't wait for a hearing or won't listen to what we have to say if they don't know that we care about them and that we're living a life that's different from the world around us, that we're lights in a dark world. If they don't see that in us, they're not likely to listen to too much of what we have to say. And that's kind of Paul's point in this particular chapter, even going back to chapter 8. He's had had in mind all along here of how he is uh, presenting the gospel to these people and and uh, not being a hindrance to the gospel and, and being able to further the gospel. That's been the thing he's been talking about. In chapter chapter nine, chapter 8 is about not hindering the gospel and not hindering other Christians with our life. Uh, chapter 9, the first 14 verses had to do with the fact that he had the right uh, to uh, be supported by Christians that he was ministering to. But he waived that right in order not to be, in any case, uh, any kind of a stumbling block, any kind of a hindrance to these people. Uh, he didn't want to cause anybody to to fall away, from or stumble because of that. And I think what he's talking about here is the possibility of, of people thinking he was fleecing the flock, that somehow he's taking advantage of them uh, through the through the gospel presentation and is getting rich off of uh, remuneration from from that. And that's not. Uh, Particularly unusual as we face that today, and we'll look at it a little further. But I want you to note as we move down into the passage we'll look at today, that actually starting with verse 12, he begins to talk about the gospel. Up in chapter 8, and most of chapter 9 so far, he's been talking about Christians but he's switching directions now and he's gonna talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as he does so, he mentions the word gospel nine times in the passage that we'll look at today, verses 12 to 23. Nine different times he mentions the gospel. So it's obviously he's talking about the gospel. But the issue that we face though is what what does the gospel mean? And past generations, I think, knew what the gospel meant, uh, but we're kind of confused today And so let me explain a little bit, and especially younger people. Uh, Some of you older folks might not be caught up in this, but some of the younger people are. If you read much Christian literature, if you listen to podcasts, if you listen to the radio and different things, you're finding a lot of evangelical leaders are talking about the gospel as if it means everything. One one very famous uh, author of, of books and so forth says, God is the gospel. That's not true. Uh, a leading light in one of the major denominations said recently and wrote down this, he said, it is a gospel issue to allow illegal immigrants to use services paid for by American taxes without objection. So paying for services for illegal immigrants is a gospel issue. Christianity Today, the leading evangelical magazine in the world uh, said this, the gospel of Jesus Christ requires us to believe The word of women is talking in the context of the Me Too stuff. And so so they moved it into a social agenda. Now we could debate uh, and we probably have some strong opinions about some of those statements. About immigration and financing those things and Me Too movements. and all. We could debate that. We could talk about that. Those are issues worthy of discussion. But let me tell you this. This is not the gospel. This has nothing to do with the gospel. And if we don't get that right up front, we'll never understand the gospel. And we have a huge amount of our Christian populace today that's totally confused on what is the gospel. And so let's explain it very carefully and let's see what God says the gospel is. I don't care what you think the gospel is or what I think the gospel is or what anybody, any religious leader thinks the gospel is. What does God say the gospel is? So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 just a few pages over, and see what Paul has to say about that. Chapter 15. And many people have seen this as the gospel in a nutshell, just a concise part of the gospel. It could be be embellished. It could be furthered and explained. But here is the nutshell of the gospel according to Scripture. In verse 1 it says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel... Which I preach to you, which you also receive, which also you stand, by which you are saved. This gospel saves. It's a salvation issue. Okay? If you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Here it is. Here's the gospel. For I deliver to you, as a first important, that which I also receive, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the gospel, verses 3 and 4. Not your reception of the message, that's not the good news. The gospel is the revelation that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that he lived on this earth as a perfect man, God-man, that he went to the cross and died for your sins and mine, that he did not stay in that grave, but he resurrected from the dead it was seen by many people. That's the good news. That's the message. When we believe that message, and keep in mind what he's saying here, Christ died for your sins, Christ died in your place. When, when he says that, he means that Christ died up for you, on your behalf. If he had not done that, we're lost. What is our reception of that message? Well, verse 2 what says, also by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Here's the gospel message. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He's resurrected from the dead. Our reception of that by faith alone, believing that Jesus Christ died for me, that he died for my sins, that he will forgive my sins if I come to him. If I come to him by faith alone, believing that message, And Jesus Christ will save me from my sins. That is the gospel. That is the message that Paul proclaimed. That is what drove his life. And that is what our passage is about today. So I hope you have that down. We're going to be looking at that issue a bit in the next few weeks. But today I want to look at the heart of the evangelist. I want to look at the heart of those who, who proclaim this gospel. What kind of heart should we have? And Paul models that very, very well for us in this passage of scripture. Paul had two overlapping goals that we pick up here. The first goal was to not hinder the gospel. And we see that back in the earlier verses. But look at verse 12. He said at the end of verse 12, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. He was willing to put up all sorts of things including laying aside his right for financial remuneration for the cause of the gospel. Then we drop down to verse 15. But I have used none of these things, and I'm not writing these things, so they will be done in my case. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. So he's saying here early on that he's driven. Remember the old Dotson commercial? We are driven. Well, Paul is driven. He's a driven man. He's driven by the gospel. And he goes on to to talk about what actually motivated him, and he gives us four things. And these are things that should motivate us in the giving of the gospel. Number one, the command of God. Verses 16 and 17 read quickly will be misunderstood. In verse 16, at the latter part of that verse, he says to me, but for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel... Verse 17, for if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. And a quick reading of that, immediately we say this. What he's saying is if I I give the gospel voluntarily, I have a reward. And if I do it out of duty, I don't. And that's the exact opposite of what he's saying. If you look at it carefully, he's saying the exact opposite. not that Paul is not willing and desirous of giving the gospel but he starts off with this truth I am compelled by God I am commanded by God to give the gospel and therefore when I give the gospel I'm, I'm only obeying the commandment of God and I deserve no reward for that I'm simply doing my duty now think about yourself going to work this week you go to work and you're a school teacher, or you're a carpenter, or you're a state worker, or you're whatever, and your boss gives you a task, and you do that task as you're supposed to do, what have you done? You've done your duty. You've done what God has called you to do. Or, not, or your, boss, not God, your <laughs> boss has called you to do. Some might think so, but okay. And they don't pat you on the head and say, how wonderful that you did what you're supposed to do. You did what you're supposed to do. And that's what Paul is saying here. Now, you go further. He said, I am obeying God when I give the gospel. And that is the underpinning uh, motivation for all he does and all you and I do. We follow him because he's our Lord and Savior. We obey him because he's our Lord. Why call me Lord and not obey me, he said. And so Paul is first of all saying, I am a steward. A steward was a slave in the first century. I'm a steward carrying out a mission that God has given me. Now here's a second motivation. I want you to go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5. A few months after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he wrote 2 Corinthians. Because there's so much that he didn't seem to get in the first epistle. And as he writes these words, he gives us in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 11, he gives us a second motivation for proclaiming the gospel and not being a hindrance to the gospel and that is he knows the fear of the Lord the fear of the Lord look at verse 11 therefore knowing the fear in some translations say the terror of the Lord we persuade men so here's the second motivation and it's not a bad motivation we know the fear of the Lord it comes right out of verse 10, a very famous verse concerning the judgment seat of Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to that which he's done, whether good or bad. Now that's a verse focused in on Christians. And he's saying that every Christian will stand before God at what is called the bema seat. That's the word for judgment. And we'll stand before him and we'll give an account for our life. Not for our salvation. We're already saved. But we'll give an account for how we've lived for the Lord Jesus Christ at that particular time and we'll be rewarded accordingly. But he says, for those that do not know him, I try to persuade them to come to Christ because I know the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. He does not want anyone to fall into the judgment of God. Isn't Isn't that a good motivation? That we look around us and we see people that do not know Christ and we're so burdened and grieved for them because they don't know Christ and we're so concerned that, as Hebrews chapter 9 tells us, that all of us die and, and then at that point we are, stand before God as our judge. That's a fearful thing to consider. A number of years ago there was a famous golfer named Payne Stewart. Payne Stewart was a very good golfer at the top of his game and he had come to Christ at some point a few years earlier and was a very vocal witness for the Lord Jesus. And yet, unfortunately, he died in a plane crash. And at the moment he died, I'm just using it as an example. The moment he died, Payne Stewart stood before God. At that moment of time, I believe. And when he did, the Lord didn't ask him about his golf score. The Lord didn't say, it's great you just won the US Open. He didn't say, how, how far can you drive a golf ball? You know, he didn't, he, how, what kind of house do you have and how many bedrooms? None of that mattered at that point in time. All that mattered is how Payne Stewart lived for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is true of each and every one of us. We stand before the Bema Seed in verse 10, but if you're not a Christian you stand under the judgment of God. And under the judgment of God you are condemned forever in hell, eternal death. That is a motivating factor that should motivate us. And and former times a few decades ago that was very common we, we talked about that some today nobody wants to talk about the negative who wants to talk about hell who wants to talk about judgment but God does and he reminds us that people need Christ they're facing judgment and Paul is motivated by that very thing Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31 says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God you believe that? It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I've used this quote by Spurgeon before, but I I like it so much and so it's expressive, I want to use it again. He said in one of his books, he says this, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees. Let no one go there unwarned, And unprayed for. That's the heart of the evangelists When they recognize the terror of the Lord. The judgment of Christ. Waiting for those that do not know him. But we go to the positive side of this. In verse 14 of this same chapter. And another motivation is the love of Christ. He says this in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. What what propelled him forward. What controlled his life. What caused him to be the evangelist he was. Was the love of Christ. He goes on to explain that. Let me read a few more words here. Having concluded this, that one died for all. We're back to the gospel. Christ died for us, therefore all died. What does he mean? Verse 15. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. So he's saying here, Christ died for us that we no longer live for ourselves. Christ died for us so that we live for Him. And my friends, that's a far superior way to live life. Uh, what, what, is it, what do you gain, Jesus said, back in Matthew 16, I believe, if you gain the whole world but forfeit your own soul? You gain nothing and you lose everything. And so the love of Christ compels us. We get so wrapped up in our everyday lives, don't we? And all the things that are going on, our jobs, our, our families, our personal issues, and all the disappointments that we face in life sometimes matter of fact, I've been thinking recently about the joy of disappointment. Thought about that lately? Anybody talk about that at Thanksgiving? The the joy of disappointment. Think of all the things in this world that disappoint us. Why does the Lord allow that? Doesn't he love us? He certainly does. Those disappointments point us to the one who does not disappoint ever. Jesus Christ. What a joy of disappointments. Not that I'm rooting for disappointments. But they're going to come. And they're going to come often. And they point us to Christ so that we might live for him. The love of Christ contra- constrained I want you to go back to Matthew chapter 11. I want, I want you to look quickly at the heart of Christ himself when it comes to the lost. Of all the examples in the gospels about Jesus' heart for the lost, I, I like this one the best. Jesus is looking out on a desperate people who are been been under the thumb of the Pharisee legalism who have been told all sorts of wrong things about God and about life and Jesus is preaching this message this is the heart of Jesus Christ come to me verse 28 all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. The tri- devil has tricked us. Even many of us as Christians. Into believing following Christ is a hard task. It's a difficult thing. Burdensome. It's overwhelming. Jesus says just the opposite. Jesus says I'm calling you to me. If you are, you, And only people who get to come are these. Those who are weary and heavy laden. Those in need of rest, and especially rest of our souls because of the heaviness of sin, come to me. Learn from me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the heart of Christ. That was the heart of Paul. John Knox has said that at the time of the Reformation, he was a great English, Scottish Reformation leader, one of the big four. And he said this in his famous prayer concerning Scotland. He says, oh God, give me Scotland or I die. You ever had that kind of passion for the lost souls? I I don't have it very often. I I desire that. I want that. I I try to grow in that. But my heart seldom is burdened like that. It should be. Oh God, give me Springfield. Oh God, give me this community. Oh God, give me people I love or I die. That's the heart of the evangelist. Go back to our passage. There's one more motivation here for not hindering the gospel and that's reward. In verse 18 he says this, now, What then is my reward that when I preach the gospel I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel? How is, how is laying aside his financial support a reward? I think what he's saying here is that it's proof of his integrity. There were already in his day the Bible bandits, the mercenary missionaries, the pilfering prophets. He'll talk about that in chapter 11 of Second Corinthians. All these hucksters who were running around fleecing the flock, taking money from God's people because they were so gullible and naive and, and claiming there to be something when they were false. Paul says, I, don't want, I want no part of that. I don't even want to get close to that. I don't want anybody to even think that it's a possibility that I'm taking advantage of them financially, for the cause of Christ, and that was his reward, I think he's saying. I, I have to wonder in our day where we got more we have far more sophisticated how many of the things that uh, the, the church, the Christian community does today to gain money uh, is actually harming many people for Christ. Uh, we have all, the, world, the Christian world has learned that they if they use certain uh, secular techniques, they can get money out of people. And they, they've learned how to use that. Unfortunately, these capital campaigns that that squeeze every nickel out of people to build new buildings, and and empires, the gimmicks that, that have been fostered in one kind of the other. The, the prosperity gospel we know about people promising empty promises that God never promises, so that we can get some reward. But there's a soft prosperity gospel in the heart of so many Christians who don't believe in that theology, and that simply is if, if we told the mark God's going to going to Uh, give good stuff to us. If we give enough money, God's going to give it back. All those kinds of gimmicks. Paul said, I want nothing to do with that. I want to stay so far from that that people will never be able to say by any stretch of the imagination that I took advantage of them. That was his reward. Now I want to quickly move on to to the positive side. We're looking at what does not hinder the gospel. Now let's talk about what furthers the gospel. And he begins to talk about that in verse 9, he has two methods. First of all, he became the slave of all. Verse 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win all the more. He said, I voluntarily became a slave that I might win the more. Now your Bible observation techniques says, Look here, six, five different times he uses the word win, once the word save, and six times he says he does all this to bring people to Christ. So what do you think he's doing? He is doing everything in his power to bring people to Jesus Christ, to win them for Christ. And he gives three examples of how he does that. He starts with the Jews, verse 20. He says, to the Jews I became a Jew, or as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. Paul says, when I'm around Jewish people, I, I can live like them. I'm not being hypocritical. I Notice, very carefully, he says, I'm not putting myself back under the law. He preached clearly in places like Galatians 5.18. You're no longer under the law. He doesn't, he doesn't deny that. He's not placing himself back under the Mosaic law. But he says, when I am around Jewish people, I can keep their kosher laws. I can follow their traditions. I can go do their Sabbath stuff. I can go to their synagogues. That doesn't bother me as long as I don't compromise the gospel message. I can do those things. And I will do those things. So this is how he lived among the Jews. He he laid down his freedoms to win the Jews. He was willing to do that as long as it didn't compromise the Truth of the gospel, but now what about Gentiles? Verse twenty-one: To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. Now the Jews, uh, the Jews were following all this law stuff, but the Gentiles weren't. So he says, when I'm with the Gentiles, I don't follow the kosher laws. I can eat pork. I, I can I can ignore the the, the traditions of the. Gent- the Jews and follow the traditions of the Gentiles as long as they, I don't compromise the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word but he's clear here just because he's not under the law doesn't mean he's not under the law of Christ he said I, guess I don't do just what I want to do I'm under the law of Christ what do he mean by that well you have to go back to Romans 8 quickly 8 2 to 4 he talks about that a bit When he talks about the spirit and the motive of his life. He says, For the law of the spirit of Christ, uh, verse 2, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sin in his own sin and the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He's saying that under the law of Christ, I no longer am following the old Mosaic law, but I am motivated by the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. I now live by a different set of motivations. That doesn't mean I live lawlessly. Matter of fact, the law of Christ, if you follow throughout the New Testament, there are almost as many commandments for Christians In the New Testament, as there are under the Mosaic law, there's hundreds of them. So the Christian is not without law, but our motivation is different. Our energy, our power is different. We have the Holy Spirit living in us that makes us desire to live for him and gives us the power to do so. It's often been said this way, the Old Testament said, do and you shall live. And the New Testament says, live and you shall do. We live at the power of the Spirit, and therefore we do. And we are in the process of having our minds renewed to the way of Christ. So, you have these two main groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. And Paul is basically saying, I don't get hung up over either set of traditions. I don't allow these things to sidetrack me. I don't allow these things to hinder the cause of the gospel. I'm willing to compromise on the non-issues, the non-gospel issues, the non-biblical issues to win people to Christ. He's willing to lay down those rights. Maybe a modern day example might be helpful a little bit. Uh, We're going into the Christmas season. And Christians don't all agree about the Christmas season. Uh, You might know that. Some are all about the uh, decorations, uh, the parties, the, the giving of presents, and the lights, and the Christmas shows, and all these kinds of things. They eat it up and they love it. Other Christians, and I've known several, who are absolutely opposed to anything of Christmas celebrations because they say it, it diminishes the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We're not celebrating the incarnation, we're celebrating Christmas traditions so what would Paul do if he was here at this time you know what I think he would do if he was in a home of someone who loved Christmas celebrations he would hang a Christmas bulb on your tree he would sit down at your parties he would enjoy those seasons with you if he was with somebody who was against it hey it's a non-issue I will simply ignore those things and focus on, on the incarnation I think that's what he would do I'll tell you right now, here, here's how I, how I personally separate this in my own mind. To me, the Christmas celebrations, the secular celebrations that we do, so many of them, those are celebrations, it's a secular holiday. It's a secular holiday. But I like it. I like the secular holiday. I like a lot of the. I like the decorations. I, I, I like the Christmas tree, especially if Marcia does all the work. No, I, I like uh, I like the food. I like the fellowship. I like the. Just, I enjoy it. But I separate that in my mind and in my life from the incarnation. The incarnation has nothing to do with Christmas trees. It has to do with the coming of Jesus Christ. Can I can I it, like both? Well, I like the Christmas celebrations. I love the Lord Jesus. That is my life. And so when I look at at these type of things, I think we can. We can say to one another, look, we're willing to, to compromise on the non-issues as long as we are focused together on what really matters. And we're focused on Jesus Christ. And also, as a church, the, in, the Christmas season gives us an opportunity to focus on the incarnation and people come to our services that don't ordinarily come. And they get to hear the gospel, perhaps, and get saved in the process. So it's an opportunity as well. Go back to verse 22 now. He says, verse 22, To the weak, he became weak around the weak. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. With the word weak, you have to notice here, he's not talking about the unsaved now. In chapter 8, he used the word weak numerous times to speak of weak Christians. So he's going back now to talk about Christians for a moment and and by the word win here he has to be saying I'm not winning them to salvation, I'm winning them to a Christian life that they should have. And I'm willing to be weak to help such people. I don't have to stick up for my ideas and my preferences and my convictions all the time if in fact I am damaging the weak. And so he's willing to lay that down to win the week, You know. Uh, it's important. It, it's sel- have you noticed. It's seldom very advantageous. When you're trying to convince somebody. Of something. To knock them over with it. To just push and push. And win the arguments. It doesn't usually work very well. Paul said. I'm not, I'm not necessarily w- going to win the argument that way. I'm going to show them my love. By willing to be following their views. Their ideas. As much as I possibly can. So that I can teach them the way of Christ more accurately maybe, maybe again an example that might be helpful uh, here at our church if you're coming very often you know we use the New American Standard translation uh, the 1995 updated version of it that's the one we use most of the time because I believe it's the best translation it's the most literal it's the best read uh, it's better in my opinion than any other translation today that's my opinion you might disagree you can be wrong if you want to be but <laughs> But when I've traveled to different places, especially overseas, it's kind of odd, they almost always want me to use the King James Version. Almost always. Now I can stub up and say, well, I can't come, but I can't bring my new American. I don't do that, I don't even bring it up. I've got some KJVs and I was raised in a KJV. It's a good translation, it's just 400 years old this year. And a little hard to read for a lot of people, but I can use it, and I do. So I go to other countries, I use my KJV, I explain all the words they can't understand, and, and they appreciate that, and I don't make a deal about it. And so if there's people in our church that have a view that, of the KJV that way, that's fine. I'm not going to fight about that. But now, Paul's not going to pamper people either. So if we had a contingency in our church that said, the KJV only, you have to use that or you're not reading the scriptures. It's not the true word of God. And we're going to, we want the church to change. We're going to say, we know a church down the street you'd love to go to. We're not interested in that. We're not going to pamper your weakness. We're not going to give in to that which is not true. We're going to teach you what is true. We, we, will, put up, we will be glad to let you use whatever version you want. But at the same time, we're not going to allow your, your preferences to affect the whole church. I think that's where Paul is here. He's willing to be weak where he could be, take a stand where he had to for the cause of the gospel. Now in closing, he says one more thing. His first method here, he became a slave to all. Verse 23, his summary statement, he says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. All things for the sake of the gospel. It's the the thing that is in his mind. It is the thing that he is considering at all points. I'll do all things for the sake of the gospel. I want you to turn to one more passage as we close this out. Back to Romans chapter 9 verses 1 to 3. I want you to show you Paul's heart. Because that's what we're talking about today. And he says it very clearly in Romans 9 verses 1 to 3. He says this. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. that I I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren my kinsmen according to the flesh you feel that way about anybody? Paul said I am willing I I even wish myself accursed or damned if it would bring other people to Christ it couldn't but he was willing to pay that price for the salvation of of his kinsmen what a heart what a passion for the lost it's easy for us to get caught up in life and miss out on the passion for those that need Jesus Christ Paul's life was wrapped around that in every aspect I do all things for the gospel we're not going to close in the song today because we're low on time but here's the song we're going to sing and we love to sing this song it's an old hymn called Redeemed here's the words Redeemed how I loved, I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child and forever I am. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child and forever I am. That's the gospel message. Redeemed. Set free from sin. Set free to follow Christ. And if you know Christ is your Savior, that's your song. Stand with me as we close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the redemption process, all that you've done for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we, we want to be focused on that all the time. And we thank you for bringing it to our, our hearts and minds today in the scriptures. And we thank, Father, of those that perhaps are in this room that do not know you as Savior. Lord, how, how we cry out for their souls. and We cry out that, Lord, even today you're, you're unsettling them in their position in sin that they recognize their need for a Savior, that they want to come to you even at this moment and receive you as Lord of their life. And we pray, Father, for people we run into every day at work and at play and at school that need Jesus Christ. May we be an example of the love of Christ. May we be controlled by that love. May we we set an example of Christ-likeness and may we be willing to be bold enough to tell people about the love of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.